Hello, everybody. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. It's Monday, November 13th, 2017, and I am happy to be with you here today live with Corey DeVos, who is the editor-in-chief of Integral Live. And uh, welcome, Corey. How you doing? Good, man. How you doing? How was your weekend? Doing great. Good, man. Finished, finished up the Integral Living Room this weekend. Oh, awesome. So I can't wait to hear more about that. Yeah, maybe we'll do a little download on it uh, yeah. later in the week. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Corey and I are today with somebody I'm really excited to have this conversation with. Uh, an excellent guest, I think. A great integral thinker. A friend uh, who's been out and visited and and uh, gotten to know him and uh, love him. And it's uh, Greg Thomas. Hey, Greg. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Hi, Corey. Hey, man. Okay. You may remember Greg as a um, as the guy that I had these great conversations with on jazz a couple, maybe a couple years ago now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a really popular series of, of, of podcasts, and I'd encourage you to check them out. It's uh, really great. Uh, but today, I want to explore some other territory with Greg. And, and I think that Greg has really done so much good thinking on the, uh, you know, this most vexing dimension of our culture, which is race relations. And... Um, I have to say, Greg, that talking to you and um, and reading your stuff, you have a bunch of stuff that you've written for the New Republic. You have some stuff on integral life um, and, and our own interactions that you really have helped me to begin to see some new territory beyond green in race. And I think I was really stuck in green. Okay. And so, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, I just have a, uh, anyway, I, 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 we'll talk about it as we go on, but I'd like to start by just asking you to, you know, we're ready for some new thinking on race, you know, so tell us what you see about this new vision for race at an integral stage. Okay. Well, uh, there's a lot there, but I, I want to start with the basic phrase, transcend and include. So I think we need to take a look at what about race do we need to transcend and what and where do we need to include race and why? So as far as transcending, we know we want to transcend racism. That's an easy one. We want to transcend um, notions like white superiority, white supremacy. We know we want to transcend that stuff. The question is, what do we want to include and why? So I've been thinking, as you said, a lot about this. I've been studying this for quite some time. And I won't say that I have any kind of definitive integral view on this, but my view is very deeply informed by the integral uh, model, integral theory. Mm -hmm. So... I had gotten to a place where, as I told you, as we kind of prepared for this conversation, that I was just, like a lot of people, just so tired of race and race conversation and race discourse. It's like, let's just get rid of this crap. Just, just transcend it. The hell with including it. <laughs> you know what I mean? right. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I remember that was when we first met. You were you, we had a couple right. of conversations. And you were like, race doesn't even exist. It doesn't even matter. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll try. that actually helped me to transcend a fixation, a green oh. fixation on race. OK, uh, but I think we sort of came to the uh, determination that. Yeah, it exists in the lower left. It, you know, it's clearly part of our shared sort of understanding about things, but very culturally constructed, right? And socially constructed. Yeah, and socially constructed. Yeah. I, more so than it is in the upper right, and that is in our biology. Right, very much so, because from the perspective of, of, of most mainstream science, Race cannot be defined clearly in scientific terms. However, there are populations, there are, there, there's genetic variation and there's, based on where people are geographically and the type of climate they have, the type of food they eat, there's certain conditions and certain diseases that actually develop with groups of people. So, Black folks have a thing with sickle cell in anemia, okay? So there is the use of the term race in some scientific circles that are not using it in a, in a racialist or racist way. They're saying, look, you know, to track certain diseases, we need to kind of keep this race thing so we can address that. Now, I think yeah. that's valid. I think that's a valid. It's, it's a correlation of probability clouds, basically. Uh, you know? Yeah. And, right. and, and, and of course, we would we would want to keep that kind of right. understanding. Right. Uh, but what what I have realized uh, based on your work is the that uh, it's it's less um, it's less important that that's in, in that area in the upper right in the, in terms of our own biology than we thought. Yes, and I love what you sent me the other night. This uh, little uh, video from an Oprah show or something. Yeah, where they had all of these people who had all of their sort of racial identities. This guy from Iceland said, "I really do think I'm better than the rest of them." <laughs> you know, he's this you know blonde, blue-eyed guy, and you know, and the, from different cultures and the Muslim and everything. And then they gave them this DNA test, and and then they brought them all back after the DNA test and revealed it. And of course, they were all mongrels. <laughs> you know, right. they, were all, they were all, they all had all kinds of stuff in them. And it, it was, you know, that's a cultural experience of a new kind of understanding that I don't know if it's post-racial or transracial, but it's like race becomes something interesting about somebody. Right. I think often, transracial. I yes. like transracial. That's a yes. good one. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, one of the people that you read in my writings was a mentor of mine, Albert Murray. Um, wow. Wow. Albert Murray. I had heard about him, but uh, I thank you for, for, for this shot of him. I'm going to read a couple of things he wrote. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. He has a concept called the Omni-American. Uh, in fact, his first book was, was titled The Omni-Americans, 1970. So if you have this, like you call it mongrel, mulatto, whatever the term we want to use, this mixture to him, that's like quintessential American. 
But that applies not just biologically, ethnically. It applies in terms of culturally, in terms of styles, values. I mean, America is this great mixture. You could look at it in terms of, of region, for example. Um, and that's what the country is. So, you know, one of the things I think you want to talk about is, like, you know, and this is, this is very important, I think, a, a distinction between what's a green view of race and an integral view of race, right? Exactly, yeah. I would say that what we see amongst postmoderns and, and greens, and it's interesting because my green download, other than my experience in life and having certain pluralistic values and, and certain um, perspectives on environment and race and stuff, just by my experience, when I was a grad student at NYU in the late 90s, that's when I got my big time download of postmodernism. Foucault, mm. Derrida, you know, uh, uh, the Frankfurt School. I mean, it was, it was a deep immersion in that because that's where at NYU the American Studies program was. Right. And there's certain things I noticed. So as far as race, um, definitely in terms of biology, it's like, get that out of here. That's just a fiction. It's a social construction, right? Um, and if we acknowledge that there are races and different groups, basically we're all inherently equal. Now you can say that that's kind of a, an American value from our founding documents, equality. Um, but at the same time, Green has an issue, and I really learned this back then, with hierarchy. Green's got a big problem with saying that such and such is actually better than such and such. Of course, unless it's, you know, if it's anti-racism, of course, anti-racism is better than racism. Right, right. You know, certain things. But qualitative developmental differences, that's a real tough one for Green. Mm -hmm. So they would probably, and I agree with them in this, they would put race very much in the lower right. So race is a part of the structures of the society in institutions and such. And it is there and it's in the legal system, okay? And it's in our history. So they would say it's there, but an integral perspective will carry on some of that critique, but it will wanna look at kind of a, a whole perspective on humanity so that we have to acknowledge that there are not only distinctions and differences amongst people, but there are commonalities. We have some universals, you know, I mean, green and, and postmodern, that concept of universalism or universality, that was kind of chucked because it's like, basically that, that was just a, a, a cover for oppression. You know, it was Europeans who used the concept of universal to basically say that what they had and their and Western civilization was universal right. and everything else was pretty much like tribal. Right. And that's the green, <laughs> that's the green critique right. of, of the cultures, particularly at that time. And you got that download and you, what happened? You mean then, or how did I? Well, yeah, or, 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 well actually let me, um, let me see. There, there, there was, um, there was something you said a minute ago that 
maybe I just lost it, but you, 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 you good to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can continue. Yeah. So for me, and it's only really in the last couple of years that I've, you know, come to terms with just not transcending it. Okay. Now, let me say this. There is something called a racial identity. Kwame Anthony Appiah talks about this. He says, you know, when we talk about people and how they see themselves, who they are, even if we look at race as a biological fiction, it's still a part of people's identity. So you have black folks who are not ready to transcend race because it's like, look, you know, we in the 60s, for example, uh, embraced blackness. Blackness in the, in the society, in the culture, previous to that was like, you didn't want to be called black. You didn't, I mean, because that was a mark of negative. That was just totally negative. And they're like, in the 60s, it was like, okay, black is beautiful. Right. But they embraced it, you know? You have movements like black nationalism, black arts movement, where race is a very key part of that. So there, it's not just white folks, for example, who want to hold on to race. There are a lot of black folks who want to hold on to it too. But I think by the time you get to the integral level, first of all, what are we doing? We're looking at the stages previous to it and we're understanding where people are coming from so that we can relate to them, communicate with them, um, empathize with them. Right. Not look down upon them, but empathize with them. Right. Now, I feel like I want to get, you know, keep with this download of where I actually begin to see how race obscures mm -hmm. my, under, my, my um, really understanding of another person or my experience of another, another person. That's really and, important. Yeah, it is. And, 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 and it's a practice that I've been doing, largely inspired by your stuff, Greg, where... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a little embarrassed to talk about this in a way, but it's like I'm I'm making it a practice to look at people of a different race and see the person, not the race. That's so key. I mean, see, I've been doing a particular similar practice for a real long time. So and it kind of sounds simplistic when you say, well, it does a person as a person, as an individual. I know it's ridiculous in a way. And I think I'm embarrassed. I mean, am I racist and stuff? But then I realized, no, I'm green. Actually, green value, I mean, is exquisitely aware of race. Yes. It's always taking it into account. <laughs> right. Because yeah. you've got to track and monitor racism. you got to track and monitor yes, exactly. Yes, I mean, it, it does its job. You no, it's true. It, it's, it's like green. power mechanism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's like Green wants to either completely deny the existence of race and sort of this faux, you know, color blindness that they like to call it, right. or they overemphasize it where it's your only defining quality is your ethnicity. Right. And, and, and clearly, neither of those are appropriate. Both right. of those limit your, your actual perception of your enactment of your value of the other human being. Absolutely. And this is really key. I really appreciate your being vulnerable, Jeff, in admitting that, uh, because, first of all, let's just admit there are differences among us. And we are used to seeing those differences in this country based on our outer appearance, our skin color, your hair texture and that type of thing. Right. So it's understandable that you're going to, you know, see that and notice that at first. 
And so it's okay. Don't, I mean, I don't think it necessarily, you should feel guilty about that. But the question is when you interact with someone else, are you, is it taking you a minute to just deal with them as a person, as an individual, or do you have to go through, I mean, I'll give you some, some examples. <laughs> I noticed this more when I was a teenager. I would actually go into some stores and I would speak very slowly and clearly <laughs> so that the store owner could truly understand what I'm saying. Not because I didn't speak English, but it was more like, it was like this racial thing was in, in the way. So I wanted to make sure that I spoke slow enough so that they would actually hear what I'm saying <laughs> as opposed to being held back by what they saw in front of them. Right. I don't do that anymore. I mean, right. I just let my bubbling personality do the job. Well, you hit at this um, sort of, it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's a pathology of green in a way that where, where you start overvaluing these distinctions and the, the victim karma. I mean, the impulse of green to rehabilitate and bring fully online people who have been in the margins, who have been left out, who have been oppressed. Oh my God, you know, right. how can you overvalue that? Right. But, but they get a little lost in the weeds. And I love this quote that you, when you in your New Republic article you, about Albert Murray. You, and I'd, I'd like to read it. It's free. And he's writing about this sort of uh, green postmodern uh, where, where they're sort of hurting more than they're helping. And he says, nowhere do the smug assumptions which underlie the ideas of white supremacy work more insidiously than among the so-called American liberals, the self-styled, quote, friends of the Negro, unquote. This was written in the 70s, right? Yeah. Their methods are rooted in the jargon of social science. Their judgments are based on tricky statistics their proposed solution basically materialistic. I love that. The solutions are materialistic. Mm -hmm. And seldom, if ever, do they stop to consider Negroes as people. Mm. Wow. Yeah. In fact, he wrote that in the 60s. In the 60s, yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a profound insight, which we you know, can track and see is still here. You yeah, know? right. Um, this was there when Ralph Ellison and my conversation with, with Mark Foreman talked about Ralph Ellison and his piece, The World in the Jug, which was one of the, I like to say one of the, the best ass whippings of the 20th century in literary terms. <laughs> where, where, yeah, where, where Ralph Ellison critiqued Irving Howe, who was a, a white, liberal Jewish literary critic who had come out in, a, in an article of black boys and native sons defending Richard Wright's honor versus these younger upstarts, James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison, who were more literary and didn't deal as much with race and the ferocity and all of that as Richard Wright did. And he didn't know who he was dealing with in dealing with Ralph Ellison. So Ralph Ellison was able to, it's like, a, like being in a boxing match. And 
he was like Muhammad Ali. And Irving Howe was like a, a, a kind of flat-footed fighter. And so he was just dancing and this, you know, was able to come at him from this perspective and that perspective. It was like, it was devastating, but it had that same thread of, you're not looking at me as an individual. Uh, you know, one of the things he said in the very beginning of this piece, which is key, he says, what happens to all of that great armament, that intellectual armament, the social science and literary analysis, I'm paraphrasing, when it comes to the Negro, all of this complexity that you have, where does it go? <laughs> you know, because that same complexity in humanity obviously is there in the black American community. Also, all these distinctions. Right. And speaking of which, this is one of the things that I think is good to say. When we look at so-called white folks, and I say so-called because, you know, just the, the, the language we use, just to say based on you being light skinned or pink skinned or me being darker skinned. And really, that's a part of, 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 part of what they call racialization, where we actually use this language in a way as if it were actually real. But when we go beneath the surface, okay, if you say white folks come from Europe originally, okay, you're gonna tell me that French and Germans, white folks, as white folks, as French and Germans, that they have very much in common, that they don't have centuries of conflict, that they don't have centuries of, of, of distinctions among them. You know, the French Enlightenment, then you have the counter-enlightenment among the Germans. And I mean, you have all that distinctions. Black folks, okay. What about in the United States, you have some black folks from the South, others from the Midwest, others from the North, others from the West. They are very distinct in their style, in the way that they move and stuff. Now, we share certain things. We share a common uh, social and political uh, situation based on the decoy of race, as, as, as my friend Stanley Krauss calls it. We share that. In fact, if you look at colonialism, you could say that black folks around the world share a certain political allegiance. But in terms of culture, it doesn't mean anything. Right. right. Well, even that concept of whiteness is a relatively new one. Yes. Um, you know, 100 years ago or just over 100 years ago, Italians weren't counted as white. Irish right. weren't counted as white. That's uh, right. I read, I read the Jewish story. people were definitely not counted as white. Right. We were talking yeah. about, let me tell you something. I'm going to take you guys inside like backstage into some black American culture and some humor. One of the things that we, we black folks say um, amongst ourselves regarding what we call ethnic whites is that they ain't real white folks. They passing. <laughs> They're passing for white. Right. Because the real white folks to black southerners were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Those were the white folks. Oh, really? So yes. the, the Italians, the Irish and so forth, you know, they're passing. They're, they're passing. Yeah. Yep. They're passing for white. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so that, they, that, that was sort of a pre, before this whole white thing uh, sort of came online. But it, it's, it's interesting to see that it did come online 
that how that has changed over time. And just that realization, just sort of like, you know, the way you bend a hanger and it just starts to break a wire hanger, you know, just anytime we can just go up against this sort of black and white. Yes. And just you like a Google map, start seeing what are the real fine characteristics here. Yeah. Characteristics that's to the good. And that's part of what is the integral project here. Right. You know, so let me let me let me go back and 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 sort of rehabilitate greed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's because um, of course we all see the amazing benefits of green and you know yeah. realization of of equality and so forth is is just fundamental. And you have to have and pluralism. You have to have that. Right. Uh, and but and black Africans were brought over, uh, ripped out of a tribal situation or a red situation and put into a traditional situation and, um, you know, uh, enslaved. And there is that heritage. Um, And that echoes, you know, there's a karmic something that echoes through uh, that experience to uh, contemporary black people, right? Well, it does. I think the, the thing to remember, and I go back to, to Ralph Ellison, one of the things that he would say is that, look, yes, socially, politically, economically, there was repression and oppression, clearly, obviously. But culturally, and this is where we get to that we space, Yeah, culturally is where the freedom was exercised. So you had black folks who were able to hear the story of Moses and adapt that Old Testament story and apply it to themselves. Mm. Were able to take Christianity and not buy the BS of, okay, uh, you are the son of Ham and you were the darker one, and therefore, not only by science, but by the Old Testament, that myth of Ham is like the reason why you are in the social position you're in. Whereas black folks were able to, to, to see through that and, uh, and use the narratives and stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament, of course, and adapt it to their own lives and their own faith and their own belief system and their own belief in American freedom. See, that's the thing. Even though the founders of the country wrote it for landed white men, those principles enshrined in the, in the founding documents of the nation, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Bill of Rights, they apply to all Americans. So at some point, the ideas that, that they represent and that they in spirit actually then are adopted and those beliefs inspire people around the world and people here to continue fighting for the realization of those ideals, even though we violate those ideals all the time, mm-hmm. inch towards their realization. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a question of what you actually can do with the little bit of freedom you have. And in, in the cultural sphere, there was a lot more freedom. <clears throat> so you you got this interplay where, Black folks are looking at the, the, the white folks dancing in the big house and all dressed up. And then they get dressed up and they imitate and mock and parody that. And then the white folks see that and then they end up 
adapting some of what the black <laughs> folks are doing, but you know, <laughs> and that, that's the yeah. way that cultural yeah. thing works, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the beat goes on. Yeah. You know, right. And we and just it's still there. It's still yeah. right. That influence. And, and who's going to say that black folks haven't had profound influence in this country? Oh in my God. Terms? Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's, yeah. Well, go on, Corey. Well, I was just going to say, Greg, when, when you were out here a couple months back, you and I had, you know, a lot of really, really great conversations about this. And one of those things that we talked about was how interesting that, you know, relative to the rest of American population. So black Americans today, it's, it's, it's what, about 13% of American population? Thereabouts, yes. A hundred years ago, it was something like six or 7% of the American population. Right. And yet, and yet such, a, such a, a literal minority of the population could have as massive of a cultural influence as black right. Americans have. I mean, right. 20th century pop culture was basically... Uh, uh, this amalgamation of black and white cultures coming right. together in a way that today's postmodernists would call cultural appropriation. Right. And would, would put an end to it, you know, right. Like how dare you, uh, Paul McCartney use this, you know, traditional blues structure. Right? Yeah. It, yeah. It be, it's not tolerated today. Um, well, the thing is, but see, that is, I gotta, I gotta say, that's ridiculous. Mm. That is, see, the cultural appropriation articles, argument, if someone takes something, claims it as their own, and profits from it, yep. and doesn't give credit to, or profits to, that's appropriation. That's right. But culture, that's the way culture works. That's right. You see something you like, you like, hmm, let me try that on for size. And that's just the way it works. I mean, that's just the way. And in fact, Ellison, again, he talks about appropriation. You adapt and appropriate from what you have around you. That's right. That's just the way culture works, particularly in America with vernacular culture. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and two of the greatest sort of um, themes to come out of that, that uh, amazing cultural inheritance that black Americans have offered us that, you know, obviously continues today has been this distillation of the oppression that was felt for generations into beauty, into namely grace and right. anger. And right. so much of the cultural contributions of black Americans over the generations has right. been finding new expressions of grace and anger in sort of this, bootstrapping kind of fashion. And you see it in jazz, you see it in blues, you see it in R&B, you see it in rock and roll, you see it in hip hop. You see it's, and it's always this, this, this beautiful scaffolding that, that actually, because what it is, is, you know, black Americans actually gave us not just an art form to help transmute this, but an actual technology. And that's, that's what blues is. It's an active technology to transmute your pain in the moment into something more graceful, more beautiful, and more elegant. More el yeah, absolutely. Murray uses the term elegance. Okay. So I would say that the anger gets transmuted. Okay. The 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 fear, the, the negative emotions which we all have is transmuted into what Suzanne Langer called feeling into form. Art is feeling put into form. Mm. Now Last Thursday, and thank you again for uh, the co-presentation we did together when I was at the Alliance Center and you uh, live webcasted. Wynton Marsalis talked about the difference between having the blues and playing the blues. That's right. 
So when you have the blues, you're despondent. You know, it's, it's, you're full of sadness and, and that's the blues. But playing blues music is a way to actually confront the blues as such, as Murray called it, in order to transmute that experience into something you can deal with, mm. into a celebration of life, actually. Yeah. One of the things Murray said is that, look, black folks didn't have psychoanalysis, so we invented the blues. Right, <laughs> right. It's so, as much of a spiritual technology as meditation or prayer or anything else, it, at least it, as I, it, you know. It is, and it's an institution also. One of the things that, that uh, Ralph Ellison said, he said, you know, they say we didn't have our institution. Of course, we had the black church, but jazz and blues were also institutions. They were actually structures yeah. of feeling yeah. that black folks used in a ritual fashion in order to deal with their everyday life and what they had to contend with. So Murray talks about in his book, Stomping the Blues, the Saturday night function and the Sunday morning church service. So the Saturday night function was a ritual where black folks would get together. He called them Negroes, Negro Americans would get together and they would celebrate. They would stomp the blues, which can only happen temporarily because the blues is coming back. Right. You, you can wake up tomorrow morning. The blues is all around. Is one of the blues songs said. But you in that moment of celebrating life and being with other people, where there's the dance and the music and all those things going together, you stop it. And then Sunday morning, you get up, you put on your Sunday best, and you go to church, and you and you give praise and homage to to God, to Jesus. Yeah, that's. Um you know, the, the critique that particularly Albert Murray says here is that the social scientists ap- actually obscured that, this, yeah. this interior reality, exactly. interior lived reality. And, wow. the, and the green does that. And that there, there is actually a case to be made to young black people uh, that there is this heritage that is, uh, it's sort of a conservative view. It's, it's mm-hmm. it, 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 uh, of, um, uh, where it, it emphasizes the interior qualities of, you know, culture and character mm-hmm. that are, need to be brought back into uh, sort of even out the victim um, identity oh. of green. Oh, big time. I mean, it, the victim identity is not going to get you anywhere. It just, it's just not. I mean, you can be victimized without being a victim. Victimhood, if victimhood is a part of your identity, you have limited yourself and others. And and, and this is where the conservative thing comes in, you know, because a lot of times I, 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 I resist, you know, kind of bootlegging in the political into the cultural, mm-hmm. but it is, it is there too. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, the idea of personal responsibility. I mean, if we have an integral perspective, when we look at the four quadrants, right? <laughs> upper left, lower, lower left, upper right, lower right. The upper left is subjective, but if you look at it in a political sense, that's like, that's individual, personal. We do have a personal responsibility in, to, to improve ourselves, to grow, to make ourselves better. And, and you mentioned this before, Jeff, this is key, that materialist perspective, that structural critique that comes from Green, 
Yes, there are structural barriers, social barriers, but they are not impregnable. Right. Because you see examples of people and groups of people who are able to overcome and rise anyway. And if it can be done by some, it can be done by others. And so there's a personal responsibility that we need to incorporate in here for people to have their individual growth and development in dimensions like their emotional life, their spiritual life, their physical being, their cognitive, their mental. That's a personal responsibility. Those are the chops that we need to develop as individuals so that when we work with other people and collaborate with other people, we have our skill sets together. We know our scales to use a metaphor that you used the other, the other night, Corey. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it really, it really uh, seems clear to me that, that trying to enact the, the black American experience through either of these partisan lenses is going to give you a, a half image um, and one of you the say, are you talking about liberal conservative? That's right. That's okay. right. Because a liberal will look at you know well as 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 Jeff mentioned, a liberal will look at the black experience and almost reduce it to oppression to to, exter- to oppression theory to exterior systems right without really looking at the the interior sort of uh, contributive factors to a lot of the problems that Black Americans are well in the, with today. In the, Contributed factors to a lot of the strength, and this is the, yeah. in, in the you know the 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 the, the cultural mojo, yes, that, uh, that's right. that I'm you know beginning to see. That's right. That I didn't before because I was in the green, you know, sort of delusion of victim and. I, I, you know, I need to fix it, and I'm right. anxious, and I don't know what to say, and. You right. know. Well, and I, and I think one of the reasons why so many white folks continue to be turned on by by a leader like Martin Luther King Jr., other than the obvious reasons why we should be turned on by a leader like Martin Luther right. King Jr., is the fact that he actually brought in four quadrants of leadership to mm-hmm. his messaging. So, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. is a guy who helped us discern and understand this, the very real systemic oppression that continued and in many ways still continue to exist uh, yeah. that, that black folks are, 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 you know, up against. At the same time, you know, one of his primary messages was because the, you know, the world is as stacked against you as it is, it's going to require even more determination, more integrity, more uh, community more, you know, we have to pull together even more than ever because of this systemic oppression that we're all facing. And, right. it, and it seems to me from, you know, my, again, very sort of white outsider's point of view, it seems like for the last several decades, the majority of black leadership that we've seen has really been privileging only one of these perspectives. A lot of it has been focused solely on systemic oppression, which does reinforce this, this image of, of, um, say again, yeah, exactly. It it reinforces, that's right. And that becomes the only narrative that, you know, a young black person has available to them to make sense of their experience. Particularly since, since, and I think you were alluding to this before, Jeff, particularly since the conservative perspective in black American discourse is largely shunned. It's, it's like they're not even part of the conversation. That's right. So they have to, so, so black conservatives, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, they have to find themselves in- Greg, Greg, 
conservative think tanks and don't tell me I have to stop hating Clarence Thomas now. <laughs> I'm, I'm a good white liberal and I could only go so far. Well, let me say this. First, I mean, this is a namesake of mine. First, I got to stop hating him. <laughs> oh, okay. You're right. He's your uncle, for God's sake. No, he's not. But Yeah, just like Betsy DeVos is my aunt. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, right, right. <laughs> Let me tell you, you know, that's a tough one. That that's a that's a tough one for me because I've I've, I've spent quite a bit of time with animus towards uh, my namesake, Clarence Thomas. But at the same, at the same time, help us, help us sort this out. You were talking about the other conservative intellectuals. Yeah. You know, uh, help us with this, because let me just say that theoretically. We know that a move forward out of green is going to be some sort of integration of green with the earlier conservative, you know, sort of side of the street. Right. So, uh, uh, so we want to know this. Okay. Well, I would say that, look, if we're integralists, integralists integralites, we're going to say and look and say, well, what from conservative values can we embrace? Exactly. We know from the liberal side, the progressive side, you know, because we're so close to that. We, we know that. But what from and you and you alluded to it, you said, you know, and this is why you thought of it as conservative. Like you could say ethnocentric, traditional values, but actually some values. You know, I don't think they stay just confined within a particular worldview. They kind of move. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So these so these American values that we talk about, even though they came out of a modern worldview, they infuse up and down the spiral. I think that's very important to realize. So these values, you know, family. What are we going to say? That's just that's that's just an ethnocentric. No, family is fundamental to human beings. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So sometimes we have to get outside of the strictures of our own discourse, I think. Yep. But, but to answer your question, I would say that, look, in the, the, I can embrace the conservative in America, the conservative perspective on small business, entrepreneurship, self-sufficiency. In fact, there's a strong thread within black nationalism, even though that is a very progressive political trajectory, it has elements that are very closely tied to what is commonly looked at as a conservative trajectory, politically speaking. So I can embrace responsibility for self. I can embrace family values. You know, I think progressives have gone too far with letting the right, frankly, uh, take on certain values that are just foundational human values. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So, so I think we just have to you know, parse out what we like and what we will embrace yeah. and what mm, we, we're not going to go with. And I think yeah. that's, that's, the, that's one of our tasks, one of our duties yeah. uh, as integralists. Well, and we, you know, I think we often confuse um, stages, stage development mm-hmm. with sort of race too, because huh. when I think about family values, for instance, right. I mean, you know, it's, it's notorious that in the, a certain segment of the black community, the family values, I, I, maybe they've morphed, but there's not the kind of family values that 
you know, are traditional, where the it's a mother, a father, and the kids. Well, but, see, that's, just, that, but let me just okay. put this other, the next point out. That's also true of mm. a uh, of a basically a red subculture in the white community. Yeah, you know, it's 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 more red than it is racial. Oh, good. Okay, you know yeah. what I mean. Right, because if, I mean, one of the things Patrick Moynihan in, in his famous or infamous report in the late 60s, uh, the Moynihan report talked about how you had these out of wedlock births in the black family. And that was true. But that is not just a black phenomenon. Right. If you look now, that was a, a social dynamic that has gone to all communities. Right. So we have to look at what was happening, what's happening in terms of social dynamics, economic well, it's dynamics. Like, it's like when the sexual revolution hits red and, yeah. and traditional values haven't really been laid down. Right. You um, know, and uh, and so there's, uh, or, or they're not strong enough. I look at even where I come from, which is uh, sort of a, you know, it's the typical sort of disintegrating white it's it's actually multicultural, but the, the, when, I, when I look at my family and the people that I knew, a lot of my uh, friends' kids and grandkids have degenerated. What do you mean by that? They are um, there's not enough work. They're oh. um, they're d- doing too much drugs. They have too many kids by too many other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just that sort of thing. It's like the family they didn't. There, maybe it was the social structure. Uh, maybe it was culture came on too strong, too fast of just mm. free sex and that sort of thing. And they didn't have enough, you know, sort of strata to keep themselves civilized. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I would, I mean, but the thing is, and this is where a more materialist point of view actually has some real validity. Yeah. If you had, in your social structures and your economic structures, more opportunity. I mean, since the what? Since the seventies, eighties, you know, we've gotten to this leveling where, unlike fifties, sixties, and part of the seventies, you have each generation doing better than the next. That stalled out right. big time, and there are reasons for. It. We're in a post-industrial stage. Of the of the economy, I mean, you've got all these changes, and then the internet comes on, and that's a total, you know, revolutionary change, right? So yeah. there are a lot of things that have fallen out from the bottom. You don't have the level of uh, manufacturing jobs. You don't have the the blue collar path to middle class status right. Right. that you had before. Right. Yeah. We do have to look at those structures not being in place, and that's where we have to be careful and not necessarily blame, even though people have personal responsibility, we have to be careful not to blame whether it's black folks or, 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 or white folks who are, you know, don't find the opportunity, they don't, they don't, they don't find the educational trajectory, the public school, the crap. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's a, there's a lot of factors in this. So yeah, yeah be- Greg, it seems like those structures that you're talking about that are missing on, in the exterior, there's also missing structures in the interior. I remember when Ken wrote Boomeritis, this was back in 1999, so, you know, a while, almost two decades ago, um, he was writing, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek, because that was the, the style of the entire book, but he was basically making a point about how green is itself the product 
of several stages of development that you have to go through just to achieve green. But one right. of the things about green is they then try to kick out those rungs from underneath it so mm-hmm. that which makes it more difficult for people to climb that same ladder and eventually make it to green. So one of the points that he was making was that, you know, green often tries to deconstruct the amber rungs in in the ladder. Green has a a bugaboo about about amber that actually sort of makes them hostile to amber in a lot of ways. And this is actually has a, this, this affects black American populations disproportionately because what it's doing is it's leaving a lot of particularly in urban environments it's leaving a lot of young black americans basically only three choices to get their amber basically right and Uh, that's sports church mm. and military Mm. and those become the three main sources of sort of that amber structure available to a lot of these and, and a lot of that is actually the the doing of green and with all of its best intentions but all of its sort of short-sighted uh you know vision of how of what reality is and how it works that's actually damaged black communities in a certain kind well i would add a fourth i mean there's probably others Mm -hmm. but if you look at gang culture right i mean you know they get together and it's a very tribal dynamic and it gives people, it gives certain people a, a feeling of being a part of a, of a larger whole, working together. Right. Of course, the implications socially are horrific. Yeah. Places like Chicago, for example. Yep. But people, but that's what you're left with. You need a hierarchy of some sort, and if you're not getting a healthy amber, you're going to create a red hierarchy, right? And then yeah. one of the other issues I'm going to get running pretty soon, but I, I, that I wanted to bring up, I wanted to get your thoughts on Greg was, you know, it seems like another in some ways valid and in other ways overbearing criticism of green is that, and I've heard Ken say this a few times, that green often does not look for equal opportunity. It's looking for equal outcome, right? Ah. And that's, that's really nice as a bumper sticker, right? Okay. And I, I, I get that as a bumper sticker. When yeah. he actually tried to apply that to real life problems, like why is there such a problem with gun violence in black communities? Why uh, is there a problem with uh, so many black men in prison? Why is there a problem with so few uh, with, with so many black fathers not being available, why don't black people have the type of wealth that whites do? Because guys, systemic racism, we did away with that in the 60s and 70s, is, <laughs> is the conservative claim, right. right? And it's obviously a much more complicated question because it's like, well, we're only a couple generations after civil rights, right? right. So we right. have prohibited, you know, for example, you just look at something like generational wealth. right. Right. Black communities have not had an opportunity to amass and then pass down any real type of generational wealth. So when conservatives see, oh, black peoples are, you know, sort of behind, quote unquote, in these various metrics, it must be a quality of their character. Because, again, we did away with all that systemic oppression stuff generations ago and they should be all caught up by now. But that's a very, very short sighted sort of, you know, and, and very narrow kind of understanding of how the world works and how populations thrive. Well, exactly. And that's my con- critique of the conservatives, whereas liberals are very social structure oriented. Right. Conservatives are so on the personal responsibility side, personal responsibility and family. A lot of times they don't want to deal with systemic dynamics. 
social structures. They don't, I mean, I've tested this on Facebook. I've got conservative friends and I tested this and they're about personal responsibility and family responsibility. When you start going to those larger, you know, systemic dynamics, you lose them. They, they, they you know, it's, that's, a, it's, that's like a fantastical kind of thing. They're like, eh, no. It's interesting. It's just the antenna that different of us have. Right. You know, which is why we actually want to integrate. Yes. Because we all have this piece of the truth that we're so excited about, and we've reduced the whole world to that. Right. But in an integrative of, uh, framework, it's essential. That's right. So I want to go back to you were you were telling us about a couple uh, conservatives or think tanks oh. or, uh, where we can actually try to get some of this other stream. Yeah, you know, Mark Foreman has written Mark Foreman has written quite a bit about this on the conservative side. So I, I would recommend some of Mark's work uh, on this. You know, they can look up Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell. Um, I wouldn't consider these two people conservative per se. At one time, Glenn Lowry, who's an economist, who's at Brown University, he definitely was a part of that. He was reacting to a lot of liberal and green. I think he's more uh, broader now, and he he's more integral, I would say now. So I would say Glenn Lowry, somebody he has a great podcast. Um, and then there's uh, Mark Foreman's, uh, uh, one of his favorites, John McWhorter. Mm-hmm. When John McWhorter came on the scene in the mid to late 90s, I tracked him. He started off with the Manhattan Institute, which is known as a conservative think tank. A lot of times, if you think outside of the green postmodern uh, anti-racist per se box, uh, or you're automatically put into a conservative camp. And you might not necessarily be that, but it's like you need a, you know, these people, fortunately for them, they have uh, tenured positions. So they've got that, but they also want to have some impact on public discourse. So sometimes they do it through think, think tanks or through different publications. Um, so I would say Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, conservative side, and someone, and, and those thinkers out today who are more broader and you can't put them into a particular camp, you have people like Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, and Stanley Crouch, who's a friend of mine, who um, is very much in the line of a Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray. Mm-hmm. Where do you oh, put me? One more person, I'm sorry. Danielle Allen at Harvard, political philosopher. Uh-huh wrote a book called Our Declaration. She's written many, she's got like a PhD in classics and a PhD, I mean, like double PhD, I mean, ridiculous level of education and erudition. She's someone who is about the fundamental values from the ancients and today. You can't put her in a political box. Mm. So she's another one I would strongly- Sounds integral. What's her name again? Danielle Allen. Danielle Allen. Cool. Yes. Yeah. What do you think of our, our Barack Obama? Oh, and that's a big question for the last three minutes of the show. I know, but integral to the max. Period. Yeah, right on. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> that's my answer. Right on. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Greg, uh, what's next for you? Where could we find more of your stuff? Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Okay, thank really you. I really want people to, 
to continue to get the download. It's been, like I said, really helpful to me. And, um, you know, if I, if I think of like what it's done is it's helped me to just sort of open my heart to this whole human thing. There you go. That's you know, where we're all victimized and victimizers and you go back far enough. And it's just, if you get that bigger picture, you just realize that everybody gets a pass. <laughs> <laughs> everybody is pre forgiven. <laughs> I hear you. you know, it has a kind of a, a Christian I was going to go with Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle had a skit like that where there was like a bunch of people looking at like, a, you know, a black family on a plane all weird. And then behind them was like a couple of Jewish people looking weirdly at the white people. And then all the way back was just Native Americans looking at everyone like. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's a good one. You know, yeah. I, I want to leave with this. I, I, I want to ask you a question, Jeff. But, you know, you were talking about these elements, Corey, uh, anger and beauty. I, I want to leave. Yeah, I want to leave it with. And this is an Ellison Murray riff again. Tragic comic and tragic optimism are two perspectives that are very closely tied to the blues. Mm. So I would I would take those as a, a frameworks to. You embrace the tragic, we're gonna die, bad shit happens, yep. you're gonna experience it, you cannot, you cannot not experience the blues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're gonna have the blues. Uh, the question is how do you deal with it? And sometimes you deal with it through comedy. You deal with it through some, uh, an optimistic perspective. You know, so I'm trying to bring some of these ideas online. I thank you all so much for giving me a platform to express some of these things. Yeah, to man. answer your question, um, Jeff, my stuff, I mean, if people want to check out my portfolio, my online portfolio is gregthomas.pressfolios.com and that's press, F-O-L-I-O-S.com, gregthomas.pressfolios.com. So you can read my stuff there. Um, this coming Saturday, I'll be in conversation with David Reardon um, in preparation for my contribution to What Now? Um, and in December, on December 5th, I'll be doing another live, uh, integral live webcast, the last part of my three-part series um, on American Values and Leadership Mastery, a jazz perspective. We'll be focusing primarily on leadership from the perspective of jazz and jazz from the perspective of leadership. Wow. And we'll be, we'll be running uh, Greg's previous presentations on jazz leadership on Integral Life shortly. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Greg Thomas. Thank and, you, Jeff Salzman. All thank right. you, Corey DeVos. And Corey yeah, DeVos. And thank you, everybody, for watching. And we will see you back here tomorrow at uh, 1 o'clock Mountain at the Daily Evolver Live. Yay, we solved racism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Bye now. Bye-bye.